Welcome to Profiles in Social Innovation, spotlighting local leaders delivering sustainable solutions to complex problems, brought to you by the University of Maryland, Baltimore, in the heart of downtown Baltimore City. I'm Jim Kucher, and I'm the Program Director of the Graduate Certificate in Social Entrepreneurship at UMB's Graduate School. UMB is introducing a new four-course certificate in social entrepreneurship, and to celebrate that launch, we're reprising a series of conversations with some of the brightest lights on the social entrepreneurship stage. On today's profile, we're talking with Jess Gartner, founder of AlloView, an education technology company that helps school administrators better manage their funding and expenses. Jess took the hard road, developing an unsexy but much-needed solution to a deep problem in K-12 education that is now improving the human condition across the nation. She's brilliant, she's committed, and she's a fantastic interview. Jess, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jim. So, um, I know a little bit of your story, but I know a lot of folks don't. One of the first things I wanted to sort of poke at a little bit was... You've been at this for a while now. How long? I just passed the nine-year mark. Nine years of the company? I'll say nine years since I quit my job to start working on this full-time. Nine years since you jumped the broom. Yeah. But the first year was really, it was just me uh, kind of... uh, walking around in the dark trying to figure out what, <laughs> what I was doing. As, as entrepreneurs do. Right? Yeah. Um, so I think it, it, it didn't really resemble a true company until probably mid-2014 or 15, but I started working on this early 2013. Started working on it full-time. Yeah. But there was a time before that when you first sort of suspected that this little inkling in the back of your head might be something, might be an interesting idea to pursue. And and I'm curious about what, when that was, how much further back it was and sort of how that progressed to, okay, I'm going to quit my job. It was three months. (laughs) (laughs) Long incubation period. Yeah, it was three months of very intense pondering. And then I I just decided I was just going to take a running leap and uh, go go all at it, you know, go all in. I think actually part of my logic was that I had an inkling that this was going to be really, really hard. And I kind of removed my safety net as a, as a strategy, like, <laughs> <laughs> I sort of knew that if I had a regular job with health insurance to fall back on, that I, it would be so easy to just give up and, you know, make a few phone calls and decide it was going to be hard and, and say, never mind. But I was so interested in the problem uh, and so obsessed with the idea of what this could be and the vision that I just said, well, let's just go all in. Although I will caveat that that even going all in wasn't quite all in because I did still need health insurance and I did still need to pay my mortgage and buy food. So I was working 
probably five or six different side hustles and part-time jobs at any given time for the first year and a half or so, even after I quit my full-time job. Mm-hmm. So even going all in, I still had a lot of other side hustles just to pay my bills and survive. Um, it probably wasn't until it wasn't until mid 2014 where I was even paying myself enough money through some fundraising that we had done that I was able to that I was able to put down some of the other side hustles. Although my biggest side hustle was running an Airbnb out of my house, <laughs> which I actually did for seven years to supplement my income. So I I actually had you know I, I I still had that side hustle going for for quite a while. <laughs> so so you burned some of the bridges, but not all the bridges. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but the 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 three month thing I I find fascinating, you know, because there's this sort of notion about the 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 light that goes off in, in in an entrepreneur's head, and and I know that for you, part of the part of what lit that lamp, if you will, was some experiences you had before you came up with this idea. Yeah. When you were when you were working in the great nonprofit space. Well, and be and beyond that, working in in public schools. Right, uh, right. So my but through the infamous nonprofit known as Teach for America, if I recall correctly. Yes, although that really is was more of a, a recruitment vehicle for for getting me into uh, the classroom. Um, I was I was an employee of of Baltimore City Schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so I. Uh, undergrad, I was very focused on education and education policy. Um, I wanted to spend more time in the classrooms because a lot of what I was seeing in the policy world was not squaring with what I was seeing in my fieldwork in classrooms. And I wanted to understand that better. Um, and I actually researched a variety of pathways to the classroom, ranging from doing certification coursework to doing a fifth year master's program to a variety of alternative certification programs. Um, and I applied to a few different ones and Teach for America ended up actually being the most financially efficient means for me becoming a teacher without going into five figures of debt, which is something <laughs> I actually I don't think that we talk about enough. Um, this is a really big problem right now. Our, our teacher pipeline, you know, you probably know from the headlines, we, we have a big problem with our teacher pipeline. Our program enrollment in teacher certification programs is down considerably compared to uh, other similar professions over the past 20 or 30 years. And I don't think we talk enough about how expensive it is to become a teacher. And so um, I, you know, long story short, I became a Teach for America Corps member in 2009. I was placed in Baltimore as a social studies teacher. I was a political science major, so that made sense. Mm -hmm. I came down here. I taught for several years uh, as a middle school language arts and social studies teacher and also did my master's in teaching at Hopkins School of Education. Um, And... 
I honestly, I got a little burned out. Um, that was what originally led me to at least take a break from, from teaching. Uh, people really underestimate the stress and strain of being a teacher, mm. especially when you are working with a population that has extraordinary needs beyond learning about the Roman empire. Right. Right. Um, I still keep in touch with a lot of my students to this day. In fact, I took one of them uh, to get his license yesterday. It was really <laughs> fun. <laughs> um, uh, you develop those bonds and it's amazing. And you're right. I mean, you know, in, in, in the inner city and, and certainly in Baltimore, you know, the school becomes so much more of a much broader social services provider. You know, I mean, early on in the pandemic, you were hearing about you know, the school is closed, but because the school is closed, that means they're not getting the, the, the meal programs that are supported by the school and, and, and kids were going hungry, which was just, just horrible. Yeah, I think all of the existing underlying challenges and, and inequities that teachers and administrators have been shouting until their voices are, are hoarse for decades suddenly were laid bare in a very different way in the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. And I hope that that spurs us to some more permanent action about the way that we fund schools and the way that we compensate teachers and think about the role of teachers and schools and society. Um, I'm I'm somewhat skeptical that, that we will use this moment to make too many sweeping changes, but I, I do have a little bit of hope that some things will be um, will will be in in people's minds for a long time and inform the way that we make funding and policy decisions for a long time. Yeah, well, there's you know there's, there is some good stuff happening in the you know the the food service industry. There's organizing going on a lot of places there. Uh, some of the Amazon folks are starting to unionize too. So there is there is some movement there, but I agree with you. And and it's also it's it's a just a fascinatingly bizarre statement about society that the folks that deliver the most direct care to those that need it the most are the ones that are the least well compensated. And, you know, as you said a minute ago, so many hurdles that they have to jump over to get that job that doesn't even pay that well. So, you, you know, in addition to not getting a great income, you're paying student debt and yeah. All sorts of stuff for, like that. For far too long, we have relied on teachers being essentially martyrs for their passion for the children. Mm. And that's just not sustainable. We we have to compensate this profession. And, you know, it's it's also it's a problem that we see in professions that are majority women. Too, right. right? We, sure. Nurses are another pretty famous example. You know, we get an appreciation day. I would, uh, you know, I think most nurses and teachers would gladly give up the appreciation day if they would be more adequately compensated. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Or, or, or even or even adequately resourced. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, the stories are, are, are myriad of teachers going to, you know, Walmart after class to buy crayons or markers or, or, or paper or whatever. And part of that is the social issues, but part of that is also just the dollars and cents. And I think, you know, 
that's, if I understand it correctly, the whole dollars and cents piece is part of what got you started on this journey where you decided to run an Airbnb to uh, help pay for this wild notion that you had. Yeah. And that is very much part of the All of You origin story. I was one of those teachers who is spending a significant portion of my take-home pay on paper and books and light bulb projectors and bulletin board materials and pretty much anything that I, you know, that I brought into the classroom. And um, I looked around and most of my colleagues were in the same situation, but not all of them. Some, some schools in the same district seem to have a very different resource profile. And so I started asking some questions about how we make these resources, how we make resource decisions, both in terms of the total amount of resources that go to a district, to an individual school, and then once it gets to that school, how are individual choices made about what books we buy or whether we buy a new banner for outside the school or paper or, and unfortunately, a lot of these are or decisions, not and decisions, because we do have very limited resources. And so I, I went down this long, dark rabbit hole <laughs> asking questions about school budgets and finance and accounting systems. And the more I learned, the more I just felt like there was such a blue ocean of opportunity in this space. Because at the time that I was teaching... We were about 10 years into the No Child Left Behind era Mm -hmm. and starting to approach some of the Race to the Top era. And those are two big federal elementary and secondary education policies under the Bush and Obama administration, respectively. And there was a big focus on student achievement and an an even more laser focus on the gaps between outcomes data across student race and class lines. And Mm. questions about those gaps was what originally got me interested in education. But then what really defined my career was asking a question about the questions we're not asking. (laughs) Such as? which was what is on the other side of that equation, right? I mean, if, if you've taken a basic, basic algebra class, you've got to look at both sides of an equation, right? If you want to solve for X, well, what's on the other side? And so I realized that for, you know, at least 10 years, we had been asking questions about student outcomes and we weren't really having critical conversations especially 10 years ago, about inputs and resources. And I just asked this outlandish question of, well, what happens? What if the answer to all of this is as simple as the gaps in resources mirror the gaps in outcomes? Which, again, is basic algebra. Which is right. Like basic, basic uh, math. Yeah. And the, the thing that I became obsessed with was that nobody was really asking that question or had the data to ask or answer that question effectively. 
And that mm. just seemed like a really tremendous problem to me and a really interesting problem and also a really solvable problem. Mm-hmm. Because all of that data does exist. And what would happen if we brought it into the light and normalized it and asked hard questions about it and looked at that data, not just in the context of are we in the red or black on this uh, on this finance statement, but are we allocating resources equitably across race and socioeconomic lines, across exceptional populations and the supplemental services that we know students need at school? And what if the answer really were that simple? And of course, it's not quite that simple, right? We're not going to move we're not going to move a few dollars around and and fix education overnight. But I do think it is a really, really critical part of the entire landscape of education effectiveness and education equity. And my whole mission is to allow those conversations to happen in a very easy and consistent way. Um, our vision for Aloeview is every dollar works for every kid. And I mean that in terms of are we getting every kid the right resources, the right level of resources from an adequacy standpoint, from an from an efficacy standpoint, um, and just from a from a plain old management standpoint, right? Making right. sure that every dollar really does heavy lifting for kids. Right. So you you said nobody had that information. Define that a little bit further so that folks get a real picture of of just how how wide that gap was. So here's the fascinating thing about school finance. We have more school finance data than we have data about almost anything that we do as a society. <laughs> the, um, the spending data in education is, is coded so extensively. Every dollar, every cent has like a 30, a 30 number account string attached to it. Oh I goodness. can tell you what year a dollar was spent, in what location, on what category, um, with what fund source. I mean, we just have a phenomenal amount of data But a lot of that data is locked in very old school accounting systems that you need a very special set of skills and a very thick binder to translate um, anything usefully. And then on the other side of that, we have the data that is reported through the Census Bureau. Every Every year, the Census Bureau does... Uh, what's called the F33, where they collect data from school districts about how they're spending their money. But there's two problems with that data. It gets published three years behind. So like literally, <laughs> I'm I'm awaiting the fiscal the fiscal year 20 data to be published this spring. Mm. Um, so it gets published several years behind. Um, so that's that's not all that 
useful because we've all seen in the past few years, the world can change quite considerably in a, in a year, let alone three. Absolutely. Um, and it gets aggregated to a level that is really not useful. And by that, I mean, we might be able to tell you that this school spent $400 million on instruction. Or, oh, sorry, this district. Mm-hmm. That this district spent $400 million on instruction. What does that mean? That could mean anything, <laughs> right? And it doesn't tell us anything about how that district allocates dollars between individual schools. And in, in many districts, there are huge demographic and population differences from one school to another, not the least of which is just different grade levels, right? It's very right. different how you might resource a K-5 school than a, than a high school. Sure, sure. Um, some of that is changing because there was federal policy that was passed in at the end of 2015 that went into effect in 2020 where school districts are now reporting school level spending. So that's a little bit, a little bit better data that we're getting. It's still three years old though, right? um, That is probably only going to be a year or two old. I mean, everything tends to be, you know, a year or two old at least because that that's going through a a slightly different, a slightly different reporting structure. Um, So we're getting better, but you know, this is figure something that goes into effect 2020. That's almost 10 years after I started this work already, right? right? That's eight years into this. We're now requiring school level finance data. It still doesn't tell us all that much. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And and, and so I think when, when you talk about this, this whole data, I think folks might get a, a picture in their head that, that okay, so there's, just, there's a machine and I just need to tap into it. But, but on the ground, at the individual school levels, you found some situations in terms of financial management that were far more um, antiquated than that. I mean, you, you found some, some real basic, almost abacus and yeah. scratch sheet kind of stuff going on, right? Yeah, and I I put a big I put a big disclaimer on this to say whatever in almost every scenario, we find that school principals and bookkeepers are doing the best they can. Oh yeah, no, right? thank you, but it's it's an important point to make that it's not it's not the local administrator that's Yeah. And it, I, I, I really, I really want to emphasize that because there is a pervasive narrative that there is widespread mismanagement and corruption around education finances. And having now looked at tens of billions of dollars of school district budgets, I can tell you that's just very far from the truth. I mean, I'm, it, it certainly happens once in a while. But it, it not nearly to the level that people think it does in terms of root causes of why schools don't have paper. It's it's not because the principal is buying a Porsche, right? Like that's just <laughs> not what's happening in like 99.99% of cases. So these the, the systems that districts are dealing with are fairly archaic. In many cases, the local administrators 
do not even have access to those systems right. or they're just so unwieldy that there's really no point to forcing them to, to try to use it. And so in the absence of that, it's some combination of Excel spreadsheets, you know, notes jotted down, sticky notes on the side of the monitor, whatever you need to do to keep track of the dollars that you have autonomy over. Because in many cases, principals are not getting finance data on the accounts that they're responsible for until a month or two later. They're getting data on the cadence of like, maybe they're getting it once a month and the data that they're getting is from the previous month. Right. So by the time they're looking at this data, it could be two months old. I mean, just think about if you were only allowed to look at your personal credit card statements and bank account once a month and it was for, you know, six, you're spending 60 days ago. Right. Now, that, that's exactly the analogy I was just going to make. You know, I can I can pull this thing up and, and, and look at exactly where my checking account is. And, exactly. And have it been able to do that for... For a decade. A decade, least, easily. Right? Yeah. And, and that was the other part of my inspiration for All of You is because, you know, I would go swipe my card at Starbucks and in three seconds get an alert from Mint.com that said, you just went over your coffee, coffee shop spending limit for the month. <laughs> And meanwhile, we've got principals managing $10 million budgets or districts managing a billion dollar budgets, and they're relying on someone emailing them a spreadsheet in like basically hieroglyph that's 60 <laughs> days old. And I just said, this is insane. We have right. people managing the most important dollars for the most important pur- purposes, and they're getting the least friendly data on the absolute worst time cadence that's totally useless. Right. So there's got to be a better way. Right. There's and and that's that's the moment that 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 I love in every entrepreneur's journey, and and that's the moment that we talk about with our students and with the folks that we help coach and advise. You know, it's that it's that moment in your life when you go, there's there's just got to be some other way to do this. Yeah. And that was the point where I just really became obsessed, and that's why there was <laughs> there was such a short. There was such a short period there. I mean, I am sort of a person in general who has a bias to action. And once I've made up my mind, I pretty quickly, (laughs) pretty quickly move on things. Um, But this just seemed so, it seemed so silly to me that actually, that it didn't, that it didn't exist yet. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, like, we ought to be able to do this. Yeah, I think I got to the end of I've spent, you know, hours and hours and hours mining Google like there's got to be something out there. And like everything I would find would be like, we've been doing school finance since 1982. And it's like, and that seems like about the last time this website was updated. as well. <laughs> we've made some progress on the data and analytics front in the past 30, 40 years, you know. So, <laughs> and there's this and, thing called computers and the internet and all this cool stuff. Well, the, the, the other thing that I think is so characteristically entrepreneur here is that I think the honestly, the only reason I'm sitting here today doing this work is in large part because of my, my naivety about how hard this would be. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, 
because you know i i of course was like pulling up this like you know i've got a whole list of my 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 starbucks spending on my phone here how hard could it possibly be to do this for school districts Right. Which is like entrepreneurs famous last words is like, how hard could this be? Well, it turns out like quite hard, actually. Yeah. yeah. And, and you're right. That, that, and that is a that is a classic moment in, in the entrepreneurial journey where, you know, there's a great line. I think it's Guy Kawasaki that says, you know, if you really did understand how hard it was when you when you started, you probably wouldn't do it. For sure. But For sure. I, I think that's also balanced by by the drive and 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 by the conviction that, that that not only is this stupid quite frankly but but the harm that it's causing yeah and i think you know i, I know you consider yourself a social entrepreneur i certainly consider yourself a social entrepreneur and i think that's that's the place where the difference that's where you cross the line into social entrepreneurship versus commercial entrepreneurship is when you realize that the thing that is so stupid is also hurting people. Yeah. And and I think for you, if I understand, you know, where you've been and where you're going, a lot of that came out of that time you spent in that world seeing how hard it is for folks to simply produce and and um, deliver a, a learning plan on, on, on any yeah. given day. I mean Let's face it, teaching, teaching is hard enough without waiting in line at the dollar store at 8 p.m. <laughs> by construction paper for your lesson right. plan, right, right, every night. It just, right. it just, this is, it's just, like, it's the equivalent of, like, you know, if we had, if we told doctors they had to bring their own, you know, they had to bring, bring their own scalpels, bring your own bandages. And, and a septic to the operating room, right, right. right. It's just, Go, everyone, go. everyone just laughs at how absurd that would be, right? And yet, for some reason, it's been the default assumption. I mean, there's not a single person I've talked to in ten years who does who that doesn't resonate with, mm. right? Even going back to their own school experience, if even if that's all mm -hmm. they had, right? Even if mm -hmm. they don't have kids, even if all they can go back to is like, oh yeah, I remember in middle school, like we always had to bring teacher, we always had to bring teachers tissues and paper towel for the classroom. Right. Like everybody has had that experience or they know someone who's a teacher or they were a teacher or their spouse is a teacher or they're doing it for their kids' school. And yeah. so it's just such a universal reality that we have somehow accepted and i reject that Hallelujah. i just reject that in the 21st century in the united states of america right. it is an okay thing to rely on teachers who are underpaid professionals as it is to be subsidizing basic supplies in schools I hope you're finding today's conversation inspiring. If you have a heart to make the world a better place but aren't quite sure where to start, the Graduate School at the University of Maryland, Baltimore may be able to help. UMB recently launched a four-course graduate certificate in social entrepreneurship, a fully online program that provides the practical skills to drive social impact with sustainable funding. The program is affordable, it's accessible, and it's enrolling now for the fall of 2024. 
Our social entrepreneurship curriculum provides the fundamental tools and competencies needed to take ideas to action and prepares you to build your own venture or lead change in an existing organization. If you'd like to begin to build your own profile in social innovation, contact us at graduate.umaryland.edu innovation. Now let's rejoin the conversation. You had this insight, you reached this point of frustration, you started to access this. Yes, it's hard, but sort of operationally, talk about how you guys started to solve that problem. Yeah. So this is this is advice that I give to a lot of burgeoning entrepreneurs. I spent at least the first year, if not the first two years, really doing nothing but research. And that means a lot of different things. It was policy research. It was research on what else is out there. It was user research. It was stakeholder research. I wanted to learn every single thing I could about the nature and root of this problem. I talked to principals, I talked to CFOs, budget directors, superintendents, parents, teachers, anyone who had a a passing hint of dealing with finances at schools, I wanted to talk to and understand the problem from their perspective and really get my arms around this. And I think so often entrepreneurs come to me and say, I have an idea mm-hmm. and their idea is the solution. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that your solution actually doesn't matter really very much at all. You really need to spend much, much, much more time understanding the problem you are solving. Because if you don't understand if you are solving a problem. (laughs) Exactly. What problem, right? Like Juicero is my favorite example of this. The the startup that raised like $700 million to build like an artificial intelligence juicer that it turned out was basically (laughs) squeezing, squeezing a juice packet. Okay. What problem is that solving? It's not that no one has a problem squeezing a packet of juice into a glass. Um, right. So I shouldn't say that it was ableist of me to say that uh, I'm, there are some people, but not, not yeah. to the, not to the market extent that this was being marketed. It was certainly not being, uh, marketed for a special, a special use case for people who did not have, um, use in the muscles in their hands. So I say to entrepreneurs, you really, really need to spend far more time thinking about the problem that you are solving. Because if I had not spent that much time talking to people about the problems, I would not have known about all of the edge cases that I needed to think about and plan for and scaffold around. And so what what this led me to is that time and time again, the core problem that I that people kept coming back to was like, I just don't have access to the data. Like, I don't have access to the information that I am responsible for acting upon. 
And and the crazy thing about this, Jim, is I would go I would go try to pitch this to an investor and they would immediately jump to like, oh, you're doing ROI for education, right? This is a return on investment play. You're going to build some algorithm that says, you know, if we if we buy this curriculum, our test scores are going to go up three points. And I said, no, no, you're 27 steps ahead. I need to build an app that tells them. We bought curriculum. Right. It cost this much amount of money and it came out of this account. And would you know that for the first three years, I could not raise money because people did not believe me that that was a problem. That, 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 that it was as archaic as, as yeah. it actually is. It was so unfathomable to people that I talked to, most of whom, you know, in Baltimore, Many of the angel investors that are in Baltimore are like former T Row execs or right. venture. Sure. They're people who work in an in an, in the in the finance industry, and so the idea that you wouldn't have access to a financial system to get information to do your job was literally incomprehensible to most of the early investors that I tried to talk to, right. and they quite literally didn't believe me. And I said to them. We can't do anything meaningful in this space. It's it's almost like a Maslow's hierarchy, right? Right, right. sure, sure. Like and they're they're at self actualization, and 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 you're yeah, at if, food if and shelter. If we can't meet the the basic data needs, how you can never expect people to ask harder questions, right? About equity or efficacy. We're we're at the or maybe you know Bloom's taxonomy is probably a better a better <laughs> better one here if you're a teacher nerd. Right. We're at the information stage. Like, what does what does this mean? Where where is the information? And part of the challenge here, and this is where I started to realize this is going to be a lot harder than I had set myself up for. <laughs> there are there are almost 14,000 unique school districts in the country, and almost all of them have a totally unique accounting structure. Oh, great. So when you've seen one, you've seen one. Correct. So we had to build a data importer that would be able to be configured for essentially an infinite number of data structures. Yeah, right. And so it's not like you're just punching a hole in a wall and connecting a piece of pipe. You're, you're custom yeah, wiring just, every time. Exactly. So... That took over a year to build, just to build like the data, to find the right people and to build the right components to be able to import data, which was a very fun time in this journey to, <laughs> it was very man behind the curtain in my, in my fundraising, right? I'd be like, trust me, we're working on things behind the scenes. You can't see anything yet, but things are happening. But I got to tell you, as hard as it was, as painful as it was, as slow as it was, looking back, there is not a day that I regret the the path that we took with that mm. because I have watched several other companies try to skip steps and skip to the fun stuff at the end of the line and they and they're just their DOA. They right. can't they can't even get out of the gate because the infrastructure to do that work doesn't exist. And um, 
I'll, I'll never forget a few years in, I, I got to talk to uh, Jim Shelton um, about this, who um, is, a, is a very, very accomplished uh, expert in the education field. He, he worked under the Obama administration and ran the Chan Zuckerberg initiative for a while. And he, he looked at what we were doing and he said, oh, you're plumbing. Yeah. You're building plumbing. And that's yeah. so unsexy. No one wants to fund building plumbing. <laughs> Every, everyone wants to do the, the, the design, right? You want to pick out the, uh, the funky couch and the cool art to put on the walls. And you guys are doing the plumbing and no one, that's, no one wants to fund that. Right. No one wants to think about that. It's so unsexy. But who wants to live in a house without plumbing? Amen. Amen. And and so, you know, this this long, hard slog. And and because of that funding, the 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 the, the paucity of, of funding opportunities early on, um, you, you had to do a lot of other creative things to 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 make this thing grow and make it happen. How 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 did that go? Um, I mean, honestly, a lot of it was really just stubbornness and willpower <laughs> to be totally <laughs> candid. Um, we really like, I should, we should not still be here. I've had many people be like, how are you still, how are you still here on the, you know, the funding level that you've had for this work? Um, we stayed very lean. People have worn a lot of hats I am lucky to have a very, very brilliant, skilled team that has deeply committed themselves to this mission and stuck by us. Um, we have this rare, rare situation where um, most of my product and executive team have been with me for over five years. That's fantastic. Which is sort of unheard of in the tech and startup world yes. in general, but yes. especially People hop for all the time. one that's been chronically underfunded. <laughs> but, um, but it's starting to become less chronically underfunded. I mean, you've got a revenue stream now. Yeah. You've got, you've got, you're in uh, what, 50 something schools districts, you told me? Yeah, we're, I think this year we'll probably get closer to a hundred. Um, Fantastic. I think at this point we're, we're managing close to or upwards of about $30 billion dollars. Uh, in the system. Mm -hmm. And so we're starting to get to a really meaningful percentage of education funding that we're help budget. Uh, we're helping to budget and allocate and manage throughout the year um, with some very major, major school districts. I mean, there's, I think at this point, probably about half the states we have their largest or second largest district in Fantastic. the state. Um, Industry leader strategy, way to go. Yeah, it's so it's starting to work. And, you know, speaking of things that have been slow and hard, selling to school districts is uh, <laughs> it's like a five year sales cycle, you know. So even even after you spend three or four years building the product, you got another four or five years ahead of you and no one wants to be first. And I think uh, school district CFOs are probably the most risk averse people uh, on the planet, right? right. So, yeah, they're right up there with university folks. Yeah, date, right. They're yeah. in. They they make they spend three dollars wrong, and they're they're in the they're in the headlines for the for the next three years. So uh, they have good reason to be skeptical of shiny new things. Um, but we we now are starting to get to the point where we've 
we've managed enough of these multi-billion dollar budgets that we we're starting to get some some real credibility and really starting to do this work at scale and and have a lot of best practices to share too which is the other really exciting thing about this phase of work that we're in now so we started with these reporting and analytics products but we pretty quickly migrated into workflow products so we're now actually we now have a whole suite of products where we're helping school districts build their funding formulas to think about how they equitably allocate dollars to schools and we're going to start doing that um, probably at the state level in the not too distant future as well. Um, and we have a strategic budgeting tool where we are now helping districts connect their strategic plan and all of their instructional strategies and, and initiatives to the dollars that it costs to implement and run those programs. Right. And so we're, we're getting districts to move towards a priority-based budgeting model and then all of that data that the principals spend their time building then feeds right back into the reporting and analytics. So they actually are now getting that real-time update against the budget that they built. So so you've effectively built the banking app that we've all been used to yeah. using for 10 years on our phones and our computers, except at scale and for the school districts. So you can see where yeah. your money goes in real time. You can get that alert that says you spent too much money at Starbucks this month, except yeah. the alert says you spent, you know, you went over your budget for paper or whatever it is, yeah. but it's in real time. Yeah. So it's again, cool. you know, the, the long-term social outcome for this obviously is the school is better able to allocate its resources, to make decisions in real time. And hopefully from that, you get to better educational outcomes. Yeah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you for that. Um, I want to sort of shift gears for a second uh, before we run out of time and get to a couple things around sort of typical concepts of what people have about folks that are trying to solve a social problem mm-hmm. and and how you in some ways look at those differently and in some ways you look at those actually very similarly. Um, and the first one I'll get to is the fact that you are a for-profit company mm-hmm. that is now actually building traction with the investment market and getting attention. And I know you've had some early investors and you may or have some more at some point in the future, God willing, fingers crossed. Um, but most people, when they think of folks that are trying to bring about social change, they, they think about it in this sort of very austere, we don't make any money, almost like we were talking about with the school teachers. Yeah. Right. You know, bring your own lunch, bring your own crayons kind of a thing. And that's that's not the mode. I mean, you're you're hey, I'm trying to produce a return, not just for myself, but also for these folks that are putting money in. So I would imagine that every once in a while, a certain type of individual might grab a handful of mud and throw it at you because of that. Sure. How does how does that sort of. Yeah. So I think. I thought a lot about this before starting the company because I did consider starting it as a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'll I'll share the reason that I ultimately decided to to found it as a as a for profit venture, and that Please. was twofold. One, 
there is a there is a more limited pool of philanthropic funding than there is capital for for-profit ventures. And I believe that that limited pool of philanthropic funding should go towards initiatives that are pure service and really do not have a means of making revenue. So mm. if you are um, providing healthcare to the homeless, if you are operating a soup kitchen, if you are operating an arts program for kids after school, none of those things have the potential to earn revenue. I think that's where our philanthropic and charitable dollars should go. Mm -hmm. Software has an ability to earn revenue. And so I personally sort of have this philosophy that if you have a potential to earn revenue, you should operate with your earned revenue and not dip into the pool of charitable funding. Mm -hmm. My second logic, uh, my second um, reason for this is that I did at least know enough about the technical challenge of this problem to know that I was probably going to need to hire very, very smart technologists <laughs> and very, very capable uh, designers to make this work. And I just knew anecdotally it would be easier to hire that type of talent and attract that type of talent to a, a startup that has some of that, um, you know, some of that social sexiness to it mm -hmm. for in the technology space mm -hmm. than it would be to have them come work for a nonprofit, mm -hmm. right? So that was, the, that was sort of my logic. Mm -hmm. In reality, I feel like the, this is, it is generally a tax distinction. Absolutely. And in terms of operating principles, there very often is not and certainly does not have to be all that much of a difference. I know plenty of morally bankrupt people working for nonprofits <laughs> making a lot money and a lot more money than I do. And I know I know extremely empathetic highly, you know, moral icons running running for-profit ventures and I think that our our tendency to associate some sort of moral compass with a tax distinction is is a bad one. It does mm. not serve us well as a society. Mm. Um I think that there are there are plenty of good reasons why you would establish yourself as a nonprofit or a for-profit, but I think that our tendency to associate that with the morality of those organizations is a bad one. There are plenty of bad nonprofits that operate in bad faith, and there are plenty of good for-profit companies and vice versa. There are also plenty of morally bankrupt corporations Absolutely. and good-hearted nonprofits. So I just think that like that that distinction is one I think we we will hopefully shed over time. And as for this concept of social entrepreneurship, I really believe that all entrepreneurship is inherently social. Mm -hmm. You are 
if you are successful, you will theoretically have some sort of impact on society. The question is, is it going to be a good one or not? Amen. I, I could not have said that better. And, and, and again, it's, it's how you approach the work, not how you organize from a tax standpoint that, that really makes the difference. I want to get one quick story out of you before we go. Sure. Um, and that is about remote work. Mm. You know, everybody sort of flew out of the building in March of 2020, rightfully so. Um, but you guys kind of looked at it differently. And I think that also gets to the whole sort of moral compass point about how you look at your staff. So, so talk for a minute about how that was and how that is sort of pre and post COVID. So we have always been a remote first company from day one. We had, we had remote employees and my philosophy on this is if you have one non-local employee, you are a remote company because if you operate any other way, you are, um, you're isolating those remote employees. So it's an equity and fairness issue. For sure. Which is equity in general is a, is a very core part of our DNA as a company. And that's internally as, as much as our products and, and, and the work that we do externally. Um, so we've always operated from these remote first principles. We did have an office for people who were local and wanted to come in and work in an office, but we were so flexible about it. I mean, we were never a nine to five, Monday to Friday shop. We were always said, you know, work when you need to, if you need to go pick up your kids at three and then work from home, if you got to come in late because you've got a ballet class, like, you know, mm-hmm. the adults you're hired because you're you're brilliant people and we trust you and you know make the hours that that make sense for you. And so we realized that we had this office that that was not cheap and I think we had one day a week where we had 30% of the staff in there. At peak, <laughs> right? And that that, and that was the high said, water mark, right? 30% yeah, was the high just, water mark. We said that, you know, and and every other day there was a few people in it, but there was never really a critical mass of the company in the office because so much of our operations didn't rely on it. And people took advantage of that and worked from wherever. And so we actually were thinking about just giving giving up the illusion that we had an office (laughs) even before the pandemic. We were thinking about not renewing our lease and then, of course, when the when the pandemic actually hit, it really felt like setting money on fire. Everyone <laughs> paying those lease payments. Um, and fortunately, we our office is in Hopkins' backyard, and they were were all too happy to to swoop in and take over our lease, which was a real blessing. They bought our furniture. They took over our lease. We we went from a five thousand square foot office to a hundred square foot office in a co-working space that we're basically using as a storage unit and we really didn't skip a beat and that was one of those things that early on uh a lot of people told me i was i was just crazy to do and the Mm -hmm. company would never work remotely and we had investors who flat out told us they would not invest in us as as a remote because of your policy about remote work being remote and <laughs> you know and now you're a genius now yeah hindsight right now yeah, we, well, we, fortunately of all the challenges and hardships that we had to deal with as a company over the past 2 years 
going to 100% remote was was blessedly not one of them. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jess, thank you so much. I, I You know how much of a fan I am of what you do and how you approach the work and how you look at the the moral obligation that you carry forward in this. Uh, it's just amazing. I can't thank you enough for your time. And, and I hope and pray that more and more people figure out the genius behind what you're doing and that they throw buckets of money at you and that you use it well to continue to help uh, our world be a better place. Jess Gartner, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. It was a pleasure. Take care. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Jess Gartner today as much as I did. If you'd like to explore the world of social innovation further, contact us at graduate.umaryland.edu innovation. On behalf of the Graduate School and the entire University of Maryland, Baltimore, I'm Jim Kucher. Thanks for joining us. Peace.